Um, I want to invite you to turn in Colossians to chapter 1. Where I don't know how far Josh got last week, but my assignment today is verse 24 in chapter 1 through 2.15. And that's a lot to cover. Uh, we're going to do our best. I had a seminary professor say one time, class, we need to get through this in a hurry, so we're going to go through it like Jehu riding his chariot through the streets of Jerusalem. So if you don't know what that reference is, you look up Jehu. He's in the Kings, first or second Kings, and was known, his legacy was around how he drove his chariot through, through the countryside. So uh, I want to leave us in prayer as we begin. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning to enjoy uh, the delicious breakfast and the fellowship around the table, and now to enjoy the, the meat of your word. And I just ask that you bless me, bless each of these who have come today, uh, that they will be struck by your spirit with a truth or an insight or a, a command or something that needs to change in their lives so that they won't leave here the same as, as when they came. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the interesting styles of music that's present today is, is what's called music mashup. And the reading and the talking that I've done, a music mashup can be accomplished in several ways. One is to take two soundtracks and lay them one on top of the other, and they play simultaneously. For instance, I looked, uh, went online and listened to one, and this this beautiful female voice was singing a love song on the, underneath, on top, was placed a gangster rap music. And you can imagine the disharmony that, and the sound that it produced. But then, as well, it's been explained to me that it's, it's not like a medley where you sing one song and have a bridge or transition and you sing another song, that you weave the two songs together. Either way you go, you make a new song. Well, as I began to prepare this uh, lesson, I began to think, it crossed my mind, that the Colossian church was effectively a theological mashup. And it's, so Paul was trying to address that. Now, what we need to understand is the false teachers who had come to Colossae to impose their viewpoints on this church they didn't necessarily come to replace Jesus. They came and the teachings that they had received through Epaphras and other uh, of Paul's disciples. But they instead wanted to come and add to it because they said you, what you have so far is good. But there is a knowledge, there is understanding the, the, of the Christian life that you have not yet experienced. And we want to help you experience that so that you can live a full and meaningful life in addition to everything that you've already uh, experienced. So keep that in mind because in this passage of Scripture, especially when we get to chapter 2, we'll look at several of the false teachings that have come into the church that we're trying to, to add to the experience. Now, important to today's study are the, the last three verses 
uh, of the previous passage, verses 21 to 23. In those verses, Paul reminded them of their former relationship with God. They were alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. He reminded them that Jesus reconciled them through his death in order to present them holy and blameless beyond reproach. And then he reminded him that presenting them to the Father in that condition could only ha happen if they continued in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So this brings us to our passage for today. Paul says in verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, in, at the end of verse 23, he said, and of which I was made a minister. Just the thought of himself being made a minister by God to the church caused him to reflect on the suffering that he had experienced on behalf of Christ in the church to help establish the church in those early days. Now, suffering was a price Paul gladly paid for the church, for the Colossian church that he had never met, the best we can tell, never met any of the Colossian people. And yet here he was suffering and saying, I am suffering for you as well. Now, he says something that I rarely hear in Christians uh, of today. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Now, for most of us, that if somebody came up to us and said that, we would assume that qualifies them for a mental institution stay. <laughs> but for Paul, that was not the case. The Bible says, God's word says that a mature believer does rejoice in their sufferings. I'm reminded of James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Paul was a James 1, 2 through 4 kind of believer. Now, I ask myself, how can we come to the point of being able to say that we rejoice in our sufferings? One is by allowing it to more fully identify us with the sufferings of Christ. Now, there's nothing that can happen in my life, I don't think, that could ever come close to comparing what happened in the life of Christ or Paul. Scripture says Paul was beaten, shipwrecked three times, Five times received 39 lashes. He was stoned, left for dead. I'm not going to come close to that, I don't believe. But it, take the suffering that you experience and say, let me help fully, more fully identify with Christ's sufferings. Number two, by knowing that our sufferings on behalf of Christ in his church. Paul could rejoice that the church that he once made suffer, he was now suffering for that same church. And then last, and the one that I think we can relate to most, 
by allowing our suffering to build the character of Christ within us as it tests our faith. Now, in his sufferings on behalf of the church, Paul says something very interesting there. In filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Whoa, wait a minute. Is Paul suggesting that there was something lacking in Jesus' ministry? Now, we know that can't be possible. So this has got to mean something. Well, for my reading, let me read to you what I put together on that. Paul is not equating his suffering with the suffering of Christ, nor is he suggesting that there was a deficiency in Christ's sufferings. Christ's sufferings at his trials and on the cross were completely sufficient for our salvation. The lack in Christ's sufferings refers to the sufferings his followers would suffer on behalf of Christ and his body that Christ being in heaven would not have to endure. As a body part in the body of Christ, Paul took body blows and suffered on behalf of the rest of the body, the body of Christ. That's the best I can do. If you know differently, please come help. Okay, now verse 25. And he says, of this church, and that's not talking about of this church, the Colossian church. That's the church mentioned in verse 24, which is church universal. Of this church universal, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Now, in this, he expands his calling as a minister. Verse 23, it stated that God had called him to be the minister of the gospel of hope. In 25, he adds that his calling included oversight of the church of Jesus Christ so he could fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That's drove Paul. What he wanted to do more than anything else, his gifting in the body of Christ was to proclaim the word of God and especially the capital word of God being Jesus. And he says, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. Now, the word stewardship has a bad rap among a lot of people because all they think about it has to do is tithing. Well, that's part of it. But a steward in the Bible was someone who managed the affairs and the possessions of someone else. And so stewardship is the management of something that belongs to somebody else that they allow you to manage. Well, what we have to understand, God owns us. God owns everything in the world. And so for us to have anything, any spiritual gift, any talent, any emotion, any second of time, any possession, God has placed us in a management role over that. And so what we need to, to understand is stewardship is a good word. And Paul is saying that the stewardship that God had given him, the stewardship responsibilities, was to help manage the early church, including individual churches like the church at Colossae. In verse 26, Paul says, regarding preaching of the word of God, that is, preaching the ministry which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. Now, when you see the word mystery, it's easy to jump quickly 
to mysterious. There's something about God, about the gospel. Well, that word does not mean that here. Here it refers to a sacred secret once hidden from man, but now revealed to him by God. So what he's saying is, I have the privilege of preaching what was formerly a secret held by God that he has now revealed. Now what was that secret? Well, hang on in there. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But what he's saying is that whereas there were individuals in the Colossian church who were teaching that there was a super knowledge, a super insight that would give you a super duper Christian experience. Paul is saying the mystery that they claim they know has been revealed in Jesus Christ and made available to everyone in the church. So in verse 27, he says, To whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now in 27, Paul declares the content of the sacred secret, but before he does, he primes the pump of expectancy with these words. He says, um, well, where did it go? I have lost it. I am sorry. Anyway, he, what, what he does is he primes the pump by saying uh, that it is a mystery which has been hidden in the past, now available to saints, to whom God will to make known the riches of glory. And so what he's saying, he's, he's speaking to the riches of God's glory. And what we need, what that reminded me of was Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. God is not a cosmic cheapskate. God lavishes his gifts on us. And so then Paul reveals the great, full of God's riches mystery. And it is Christ in you. In other words, the salvation that comes from Christ being in you, the hope of glory, that is a guaranteed salvation throughout eternity in heaven. So the mystery was that until Jesus came, lived his life, died on the cross, and then was sacrificed for our benefit, that was the hidden secret, that it would be his son coming to earth to die on the cross for our sins that would cause him to be the long-promised Messiah. And he says, and now it is being revealed to the Gentiles like we're living in Colossae. And so that, that's what he got to preach. That's what we get to preach. That's what we get to teach. That's what we get to witness to is that God, through Jesus, has transformed our life and given us a guaranteed salvation throughout eternity. 
And so in 28 he says, And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. As part of Paul's calling and mission was to fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That's what we saw in verse 25. And so his number one priority was to proclaim Christ, declare to one and all regarding the riches of God's glory that was available to all. Whereas the false teachers preached a prominent Christ, Paul preached the preeminent Christ. That Christ was fully sufficient to provide every spiritual thrill that they could ever want to have or need to have. Now, in the balance of verse 28, it reveals two things about Paul's preaching Christ. One was part of his methodology. It says, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Admonishing is to warn or reprimand someone firmly. Through his letters, Paul admonished lost men and saved men regarding the consequences of sin in their lives. He says he taught, he explained, he helped give information and explained what it meant so that they would know how to live the Christian life. And he said, I did both with all wisdom. And that wisdom was not from his own common sense. That wisdom was the truths of God that had been revealed to him. So all wisdom there refers to the wisdom of God. One of the best descriptions of God's wisdom I've ever come across is in a book by Chip Ingram called God as He Longs for You to See Him. Quoting one of his seminary professors, Chip Ingram said, God's wisdom is his ability to use the best possible means to accomplish the best possible results for the most possible people for the longest possible time. Let me say that again. God's wisdom is his ability to use the best possible means to accomplish the best possible results for the most possible people for the longest possible time. And so that means, if we use that definition, that's what God's wisdom means to us as well. That we would know how to get the best end result uh, using the best method that God can bless. Now, the second thing we learn is Paul's motivation. So that we may present every man complete in Christ. Now, look back at verse 22 and you'll see some of what it means to be complete in Christ. He said, He has now reconciled you in his flesh, talking about Jesus, through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And so that is part of what Paul was seeking to do. What a good question to ask is, what does it mean to be complete in Christ? Another way of asking it, what does a true disciple of Christ look like? Well, if you look out on the wall by the library in the B Hall, you'll see that our explanation of it in simple form is it's a person who's been changed by Jesus, walks with Jesus, 
and is sent by Jesus. So a good evaluation question this morning for all of us. Have I been changed by Jesus? Have I, am I walking with Jesus? Have I been sent by Jesus? Meaning, am I going? Because we know he's done the sending. Okay. Now, 29 says, for this purpose, meaning, going back to 28, to present every man complete in Christ, for this purpose I also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within him. Paul says, I don't shy away from the hard work of ministry, and neither should we, I can add. Now, his ministry, his laborious efforts to preach the gospel, to preach the gospel of hope, to, to labor among the, the churches when he's not in prison as he is when he's writing this, all of that... What, he does it, he says, according to his power, not his own power. His power meaning the power of Christ working with him. Like what commentator Mark Johnson says about this. He says, Paul's ministry and skill as a preacher of the gospel were not merely the transfer of the natural energy and abilities that used to be his as a Pharisee to what he now was as a Christian minister but nothing less than the supernatural gifting of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It was not Paul doing this. It was Paul energized by the Spirit doing this. Now, I stopped and asked myself at that point of my study, what was there about Paul that enabled him to so sell out to God such that the power of God was so evident in his life? There's just something different about Paul than me and other people that I know. Let me give you three thoughts. Once Paul got saved, he never got over it. Number two, once he experienced the grace of God, he never got over it. Number three, once God called him to the mission of bearing Christ's name to the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel on that road to Damascus, he never got over it. Okay, moving on to chapter 2. Good. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Now, this is one of the verses that has led some scholars to believe that Paul has never been face-to-face -face with the members of the church of Colossae. Now, in chapter 2, we're going to see it gives Paul opportunity in his narrative uh, to identify some of the false teaching which was resulting in their mashed-up theology. Now, remember that the overall attempt by the false teachers was not to replace Christ, not to replace the teaching that they received, but to add to it some kind of additives that would give them a super spiritual experience as a Christian. Now what Paul is going to do is to combat their efforts with truth. So he says 
in verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. Now remember, Paul has never been with them. He's heard of them through Epaphras and others who have come to visit him in prison. And yet he has a deep burden from them. Remember, God gave him stewardship over the church. Management responsibilities over the church. That included individual churches. And so what Paul, Paul's burden arose from the fact that he felt a, a responsibility and an accountability to the welfare of all the churches that had begun, been begun in Asia Minor uh, with his help. And so we need to understand that Paul was going to do everything he could to defend and to protect one of Christ's churches. So in verse 2, it says that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. In verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, in verse 2, Paul reveals the end results he's intending to achieve as a result of his labor and striving on their behalf. He wants to encourage their hearts to remain steadfast in their faith, to stand firm in the face of spiritual warfare. That word encouraged can also be translated comforted. It comes from the Greek parakaleo, which is the, the word in Greek that we get our word paraclete. And we know that the Holy Spirit is called that over in, I think it's the book of John. Literally, it means call to one side to come to one's aid so that they are comforted and exhorted. So it's in the coming alongside of another person that they are encouraged to stand firm. So Paul is saying, I am standing with you. In spirit, I am there with you. Hold on. Stay steadfast. Don't give in to the silks, uh, silky speaking voices of these false teachers. And so he says that, that this... Uh, experience of encouragement will come from two things. It will come first from their experience of being knit together in love. Think about this word picture. The church is supposed to be like a multicolored, multi-pattern knitted sweater. Each strand of yarn standing on its own, but woven together in a beautiful tapestry of color. And so a common unyielding love for God and one another, along with an unyielding commitment to God to stay fast and to stay uh, strong, would be what would bring them to experience the love and unity more than false teaching ever could. But also, he said, encouragement is going to come from understanding that, that true wealth is found not in riches, but in knowing and loving and serving God. So he says it would come from the experience of assurance, certainty, and confidence for living that comes from the full assurance of understanding 
and which results in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. Now, when Paul uses those words, understanding, true knowledge of God's mystery, he was probably using words that some of the false teachers used. And so by pointing to Christ as the source of true knowledge, true understanding, resulting in, uh, in, in the encouragement that would come, Paul is saying that in Jesus and Jesus alone, you have everything you need as a believer, you Colossians. Okay, now in verse 3, he says this full assurance of understanding, true knowledge of God's mystery is all made possible in the fact that the treasures of wisdom and knowledge reside in Jesus. The treasure they were looking for in a, in a Christian experience would only be available in Jesus. And this, I think, is the central truth in this passage that Paul is trying to drive home. You don't need anything more than you've already received in the person of Jesus Christ. In the teachings that we have given you, uh, uh, in tying the, the story from Genesis all the way through to the end of time, you don't need any more than what you are already giving. So everything we need in the Christian life is available in Jesus Christ. Now, verse 4, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. Now, in this, Paul issues an outright warning regarding the false teachers and their teachings. And he says, I am coming to you, encouraging you, teaching you, admonishing you, so that you would not be deluded with persuasive argument. And Paul is expressing confidence in them that they have in place everything they need to resist these who are trying to delude them. And he knew the only way that they would walk away from their faith would be if someone deluded them. And verse 5, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Paul is about to get into some heavy admonition and teaching. First, he wants to affirm the Colossian believers regarding their good discipline and stability of their faith. Both of these attributes are worthy of pursuit in our lives as well. And verse 7, he says, As you have received, therefore have received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. As you have received, that reminds me, it's the language of John 1.12, to as many as received him, to him he gave the power to become the children of God. So he is saying you have received him into your heart. As a result of that, he says walk with Jesus. To walk in him means to walk with him. So that means to walk with him, we must be going in the same direction. We must be going at the same pace. We must start and stop at the same time as he. To walk with him, we must walk in his strength and his empowerment. And ultimately, we must walk in the same way we received him. How do we receive him? We received him by grace through faith. 
How do we become sanctified? We live by grace through faith. We don't get saved by Jesus and stay saved by works. We get saved by grace through faith in Jesus, and we get sanctified by grace through our faith in Jesus and what he says is the way we should live. Now, verse 7, Paul says, Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Now, what he identifies there is four traits of theirs that he's commending and that we should seek to have in our, in our own lives. He said, first of all, firmly rooted in him. This is an agriculture term, and the verb form means a once and for all rooting, one-time experience. And, and the imagery that I got at that point was of a, a plant or a tree taproot going deep into the soil. This taproot is needed to hold this, the upper part of the tree or what a bush or whatever steady. And so I can envision at salvation a taproot going from our life into the life of Jesus to become rooted and firm so that we can hold steadily, steady. And then he says you are being built up in him, an architectural team term meaning to build upon him. This brings us to, to the sermon, end of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, build your life on a rock, not on the sand. And so, obviously, our life is to be built on Jesus. He said, you're established in your faith, just as you were instructed. It means to be firm and secure and stable. And so, Paul is declaring all of these positive traits that any Christian should seek to have in his or her life. But yet, notice that he still warned them. And we need to take <clears throat> that to heart that we should not become so uh, desensitized to what we experience as a Christian to think that we are not, uh, could not become a victim of false teaching uh, if we don't stay with the truth. And then he says, overflowing with gratitude. Overflowing is a word that describes a river overflowing its banks. I thought of the numbers of times over my life that I've seen Cleveland Park flooded after severe rains. Well, that's the imagery here. It says, your lives are overflowing with gratitude. What does it take to be a person of gratitude? It takes a person with humility, and it takes a person who feels dependent upon other people instead of independent of other people. And so those are two qualities that are also attractive. Now, verse 8 it says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now, in that verse, you see three of the, the possible methods that the false teachers were using to try to lay down or merge in to their Christian teaching they've already experienced to give this super-duper religious experience. Paul says these are some of the things that could capture you if you're not careful. Philosophy and empty deception. We don't know if Paul is referring to the Greeks' love of philosophy or if he's seeing this 
um, as the people claiming this super knowledge, a deeper knowledge for spiritual things, uh, it, it doesn't really matter. But what he's saying is, if we depend upon the philosophy of the world, instead of truths according to Christ, we can become victims of false teaching. He said the traditions of men could be part of the trap. These teachers would defend themselves on one hand by saying, we're not teaching anything new. We're teaching what has been handed down to us throughout the ages. So what's the big deal? And then he refers to the elementary principles of the world. Elementary comes from the Greek word that uh, stoicheia, which was used to describe the letters of the alphabet being written in order. In other words, the very basics of grammar start with the alphabet. And they, they would claim that we are uh, using simply the elementary principles of the world to reinforce uh, the, the ex experience we're promising. Now, two possible interpretations of what Paul meant by this. Some see it as referring to the demonic powers and principalities over which the false teachers claimed to have dominion. They were claim that possibly claiming that there are principalities out there of darkness and we can manage them. Others see Paul speaking facetiously here. And what we mean by that is Paul was saying, here the false teachers claim to have new super-duper teachings that lead to great enlightenment, but all of it is nothing more than what we have already known about life. And as one commentator said, just ABC stuff. Nothing of importance. But then he says, understand how you recognize the fact that it's not true is you put it up against Christ. He says it's not according to Christ. So we should look to Christ for our truth. Now, the end of the, chat, the, end of the passage that I've been assigned, verses 9 through 15, Paul seizes the, the opportunity to proclaim all the treasures we have in Christ. He does so to show Colossians and us why that we have everything we need for spiritual enlightenment in relationship to Jesus. Verse 9, it says, For in him all the fullness of, the deity, of deity dwells in bodily form. When Jesus walked on the earth, God walked on the earth because Jesus is God. And so he's reinforcing, look at the words, all fullness dwells. He's, he's saying, you don't need anything else, Colossians. And then in verse 10, he says, in him you have been made complete. You've been made whole. What, what Paul was preaching to accomplish, in, in essence, has already occurred. They just needed to live it in their lives. He says, he is the head over rule and authority. He is Lord. He has authority over all of life, every person in life. How could there be anything lacking in him if he is that? Verse 11, And in him you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. 
some commentators suspect that there was not necessarily the, the legalist group that had invaded Galatian church that caused the problems there by, by suggesting that everybody had to be circumcised to be a believer. There doesn't seem to be that element present in the Colossian church. So some have suggested that maybe what they were suggesting was a voluntary circumcision that would elevate their commitment and dedication and give them this super-duper spiritual experience that the false teachers promised. Now what Paul is saying is you've already experienced the only uh, circumcision that you need. You experience it through the fleshly spirit that you have being circumcised by Jesus Christ. Now he goes on to say, if you want something to pin your hat on, look at verse 12. Pin it on baptism. That's a physical act that gives you uh, access to the covenant relationship. Not, no, I didn't mean to say that. Baptism allows you to, to proclaim the covenant relationship that you already have with Christ. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. We don't need a physical circumcision to, to speak to your covenant with God. You've had baptism. That's all you need as a, as a physical act. <clears throat> and then he says, in verses 13 14, and you were dead when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of our transgressions. Before Christ, we're dead in our sins, uncircumcised in our spiritual flesh. After Christ, made alive together with him, all of our transgressions forgiven. Now, in verses 14, he uses the imagery of the crucifixion, of, of Roman crucifixion, uh, but also referring to Jesus' crucifixion. In what, in what way? You remember when Jesus proclaimed, it is finished on the cross. That is the Greek word to telestai. To telestai literally means it is finished. Now, what it was also used in the legal world on contracts, on documents, on invoices, that when it had been completed, they stamped to telestai on it to say it has been paid in full. And that sometimes would be posted on the cross. You know, they put, they listed their crimes, and then it would be written to Telestai that the crime had been paid in full through that crucifixion. And so the picture, the imagery here is that when Jesus, when all of our sin is listed, Jesus nails it to the cross and writes to Telestai across it, paid in full. There's nothing else needed to pay for your salvation. And then he comes to verse 15, uses another imagery out of the Roman culture, and that's the imagery of 
uh, the tr Roman triumph. This is when a Roman general would come into Rome with all of his captives walking naked behind him and parading them through the streets of Rome in triumph. Now read verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And so that refers to Satan and his demons. Now let me wrap it up for quick points of application. You and I always need to be extra cautious in discerning what is biblical and what is not. What is true truth, especially in our day when our culture assigns the responsibility of deciding what is truth on the individual. Truth is up to the individual in our culture. We know better, but that's the reality. Number two, we should be biblically influenced before we're ever culturally or traditionally influenced. In other words, our worldview should be unashamedly Christian before it's ever cultural or traditional. Number three, just like the Jews made circumcision to be their ticket to heaven, people today can make their baptism their ticket to heaven. We need to help people understand you don't get saved by baptism. You get saved by your faith in Jesus Christ. And last, the role of the church is to do all we can to present every man complete in Christ. That is what making disciples is all about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to explore this passage of Scripture. Lord, help us to realize that there are false teachers among us in our culture. Don't know of any in our church, but help us to understand that through all the media that we are surrounded with, it's very easy for the false teaching to slip into our hearts and say, well, that makes sense to me, without ever taking the time to compare it to what is biblical and what is not. I pray that the, the attributes that Paul praised in this passage, we will adopt in our lives. The passages or the, the attitudes and the actions that he condemns, I pray that we will avoid. Bless us throughout the rest of this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You're dismissed.